Hey, thanks for tuning in to the Meadowview Weekly Sermon Podcast. We're a church who seeks to grow in Christ, gather in community, and go in obedience to the Great Commission. Now some time has passed by. Daniel is no longer a, a youngster anymore, no longer a teenager. He's probably 45 to 50 years old when this chapter uh, gets to us. And so uh, he's going to be used by God one more time to interpret a dream that's going to uh, humble King Nebuchadnezzar. You ever notice that humility is a hard lesson to learn? You ever notice that? Uh, maybe if you've been uh, you know, watching any political things on television, you've, you've been able to notice that you know, humility is a very hard lesson to learn, and some people still need to learn it. Am I right? So uh, there was one politician named Ronald Reagan. Uh, he's he's uh, long, long, ago, uh, long enough ago that I can reference him, right? Uh, he was calling on an, on an occasion where he was the governor of California, and he was to give a speech in Mexico City. After, he said, after I had finished speaking, I sat down to a rather unenthusiastic applause, and I was a little embarrassed. The speaker who followed me was in Spanish, and I didn't understand, and uh, he was being applauded at every paragraph. To hide my embarrassment, I started clapping before everyone else and longer than anyone else until our ambassador leaned over and said to me, I wouldn't do that if I were you because he's interpreting your speech, right? Humility is a hard lesson to learn. Some of y'all get that later. That's, that's okay. Uh, Proverbs says it this way eight, in eighteen twelve: before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. King Nebuchadnezzar is going to learn a very difficult lesson as he is... Um, made to, to know that he has a lot of pride in his life. And the thing with pride is, is you can't spell pride without I. And you're going to hear a lot of I statements in this chapter by, by King Nebuchadnezzar. Because pride craves power. Pride craves power. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. There's some I statements. Maybe you've thought these before or said these before. I know best. I'm in charge. I can make my own decisions. I know what I'm doing. Pride craves power. Maybe if you've ever had a teenage boy uh, in your house or uh, you've heard them say something like, check this out, right? Right before they got injured, right? Check, check this out. Look what I can do. And uh, it's never a good idea. Pride craves power. It craves to be in charge. Not, I'm not referencing any certain teenage boy uh, when I say that, but um, pride compares possessions. Philippians 2, 3, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Maybe some more I statements you've thought. I am better than you. I make more than you. I know more than you. I look better than you. What do you think you're doing, right? There's this, this attitude that comes across when we compare our possessions. Pride compares possessions and pride consumes a person. Psalm 10, 4. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. Pride is the major problem we're running into with King Nebuchadnezzar. I statements like this, maybe you've thought these or said these before. I must have that. I deserve that. I earn that. I don't care if you think it's wrong as long as I get what I want. I statements. You can't spell pride without an I. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, he writes about pride, and he says this, There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, 
which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. It is the comparison that makes you proud. The pleasure of being above the rest. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above. Whenever you find that our religious life is making us feel that we are good, above all, that we are better than someone else, I think we may be sure that we are being acted on, not by God, but by the devil. The real test of being in the presence of God is that you either forget about yourself altogether or you see yourself as a small, dirty object. If you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, as he writes these words, you're going to see pride in the life of King Nebuchadnezzar. You're going to see that he forgets about himself. And he goes through a period of time of consequence. Can I pray for us as we jump into God's word? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is a light to our path. But God, I would ask that we would all have ears to hear today and that the presence of your Holy Spirit would enlighten your word to us, God, that we would be transformed, that we would be made new, that we would know you in a new way and that we would lay aside our pride and conceitedness and that we would humbly fall before you. Father, we love you and we thank you for your word in Christ's name. Amen. First thing we see is this, conviction in a corrupt culture cares for those who are corrupted by sin. What we're going to do is we're going to kind of jump through the chapter because it's a lot of verses. So I'm going to pick up in verse 4, about halfway through. It says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, and they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Jump down to verse 18 and 19. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belshazzar, Daniel, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of the kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name is Belshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. Stop right there. Daniel interprets the dream and it, it alarms him. He's upset about what he's about to tell King Nebuchadnezzar. But see, the thing with God is God knows that great heartache is often needed to bring about great humility. Humility is a hard lesson to learn. And sometimes God takes us through great heartache in order to humble us. He said, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house, prospering in my palace. At that time, God humbled King Nebuchadnezzar. Living at ease often erases our interest in the eternal. We're all 
guilty of this. We all struggle with this. Proverbs 38 through 9 is a prayer, and it says, Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you. And say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of God. This is a biblical prayer for us to not become so comfortable with the consumption of the world and with life at ease that we forget to live with conviction. This is where King Nebuchadnezzar was, so full of ease, living in a palace, enjoying life. Often in a corrupt culture, we're so full of ease and we're so uh, consumed with the things of this world that we often forget about the eternal. We forget about God. We all have this danger. We all have consumed so much that we can lose sight of our convictions. We've all eaten so much and partaken so much of the things of this world that often we just become so used to this world. But if we lose sight of our desperate need for God, we lose sight of the world's desperate need for God also. I think that's where we struggle with conviction in a corrupt culture. We've become so at ease with the things of this world that we forget that there's a world that desperately needs Jesus Christ. King Nebuchadnezzar was at ease. But in desperate humility, we are called and we should view people with empathy and not as enemies. Look at what he says there. Verse 19, Then Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belshazzar, let not the dream and the interpretation alarm you. Belshazzar answered and said, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. When you read that, you realize that Daniel doesn't view King Nebuchadnezzar as an enemy. Now, you think about all the things that have taken place up to this point. We've gone through, this is four chapters now, and he was taken from his homeland. He was brought there. He's put into a corrupt culture. He had a corrupt king, a pagan king, who has threatened to kill him a couple of times. And they've been, they've been made to do all the things of this, of this pagan culture. And yet he doesn't see him as an enemy. He sees him as someone that deserves the love of God, the care of God. Why doesn't Daniel consider Nebuchadnezzar an enemy? Could it be that Daniel wants the best for Nebuchadnezzar? Could it be that he actually wants what's best for him? Could it be that he has, forgotten, he has forgiven his enemy and submitted to God's sovereignty? Daniel is submitted to God's plan. It's God's plan to uproot Daniel. It was God's plan to put him under a corrupt king and a corrupt culture. It was God's plan to reveal himself to King Nebuchadnezzar through dreams and to interpret them through his gifted servant, Daniel. Could it be that Daniel is so committed to conviction, he's so committed to the Lord, that he's willing to be submitted to the sovereign will of God, even if it's uncomfortable for him? Because he wants what's best. As servants of God, we must be submitted to God's plan before we can ever be able to live, to love our enemies, and voice our loving concern for those who are perishing in sin. Before we can ever be used of God, we have to be submitted to God's sovereign plan. If we are full of pride, religious pride for that matter, we demonstrate an arrogance and a resistance to the plan of God and the purposes of God to reach the corrupt culture and corrupt individuals through us. God wants to use us. So what we see throughout these chapters is that God gives warnings before he gives his wrath. God pursues before he punishes. Let me just Let's flip back through and let's look at a couple of instances there in Daniel chapter 1, 18 through 20. At the end of time, at the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke to them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, 
Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. And this is the first time where, where God uses these young men to look different than the rest of the world. It's their conviction that has led them to this point where they stand before the king and he notices and he admires what God has done and the gift that God has given these men, but he's not willing to accept God as his God. There's the first warning sign. Daniel chapter 2, 46 through 47. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Again, God is pursuing King Nebuchadnezzar, and he's paying homage to God with his mouth, but it's not the same as honoring God with his life. He's not willing to honor God. Then you get to chapter 3, verses 28 through 29. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any God except their own God. Therefore, I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Now, this sounds like King Nebuchadnezzar is starting to have a change. But... Adding Jesus to a polytheistic pattern of life isn't the same as proclaiming Jesus as Lord. Let me say it this way. Adding Jesus to a multi-God mentality is not the same as making Jesus Lord of your life. And this is a danger we all face is because we have so many things that we worship and so many idols and so many comforts that it's often say, yeah, he's a great God, but he's one of many things that I rely on. And if our allegiance and our uh, adoration and love is for all these other things, Adding Jesus to a long list of things that you love and you ad- adhere to is not the same as making him Lord of your life. And that's where, that's where Nebuchadnezzar is. He's, he's been given warning sign after warning sign after warning sign. And God is continuing to use these men as instruments of that warning. God's instruments of warning and warning signs are his people. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have all served as a voice for God by living with conviction in a corrupt culture. You can't be God's voice of warning if you aren't in a position to proclaim conviction. And conviction claims who Christ is with a life of worshipful action, not a life of complaining, compromising, or being combative. And if we will just look at what it looks like to be a Christian in a corrupt culture, just just for a moment, and and you parallel that with Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you've got these men... And they're living in this corrupt culture and they're living by their convictions and they're doing so as a light in a dark world and God's using them and he's pursuing King Nebuchadnezzar. Hey, look at this, look at this. I'm the king above all kings. You're not him, you're not him. And they're doing it without complaining. In any of the chapters leading up to this, have you seen any point where these men are complaining about what is going on in their life? But often we, as Christians living in a corrupt culture, complain. Can you believe that? Can you believe that? We get all upset and we, for lack of a better term, we whine about the situations that are around us or we, or we turn to compromise. At not one point do you see these men compromising their convictions and living like the rest of the world is. They're, they're living by convictions or they're not even becoming combative. They're not fighting. And, and for most of us, we've, 
We've maybe lost the opportunity to be a light in a dark world because we are so combative that we want to pick a fight with the world because they're doing it wrong. And so we are wrestling with a corrupt culture and we're doing it in a way that is corrupt. But these men, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're living lives of conviction in a corrupt culture and God is using them as a warning sign of his wrath. Could it be that in God's sovereign plan, he has placed you in a particular community in this particular culture to be a voice of conviction and a visible warning sign that his wrath is coming to those living corrupted by sin. Could it be for you, individually, that God's sovereign plan is to place you exactly where he has you, exactly in this culture, exactly in this community, exactly around certain people to use you as a light and a warning sign that his wrath is coming for those who live corrupt by this world. He wants to use you in that. God is pursuing and he's loving and we should be too. So let me ask you, has God been trying to get your attention? Has God been putting up road signs? Has God been putting individuals in your path to slow you down, to disrupt the ease of your life and to cause you to contemplate eternity? Conviction in a corrupt culture calls for repentance. Let's keep reading, starting in verse 20. The tree you saw, this is the dream, which grew and became strong, so its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, in which, you, in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and whose branches the birds of heaven lived. It is you, O king who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. Verse 23. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beast of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is the decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord, the king. Verse 25. But you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom he will. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may be perhaps, there may be perhaps lengthening of your prosperity. Daniel comes and he gives King Nebuchadnezzar the interpretation of the dream. And Nebuchadnezzar demonstrates to us that refusing to repent results in living a crazed carnality and rebellion. Rebellion without, without repentance leads to God's wrath. There's a point, there's a breaking point where Daniel even says, look, there, there's only one hope for you. You're heading down the path of destruction. You're headed down this crazed lifestyle. This is, this is what God says is going to happen to you. The only hope for you is to repent. The only hope for you is to, to stop this. Look at what Romans says in chapter 1, 18 through 21. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. 
For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. The problem with a corrupt culture is its refusal to receive God's revelation and repent. The issue of the day, the day are symptomatic of the underlying problem. The problem with the corrupt culture is that it refuses to listen to God's revelation of who he is and to repent of the sin that's in his life. Everything else that we see going on in our culture is symptomatic of this major problem. There's a lack of repentance. There is a pride. There's a bunch of I. And, there's, and humility is a hard lesson learned. And that's exactly where God is steering King Nebuchadnezzar. And it says, for although they knew God, they did not honor God. Sounds a lot like Nebuchadnezzar. If you look back over these verses we've read from the previous chapters, he, he knows God, he's heard of God, he's been shown God, but he refuses to acknowledge God. For although Nebuchadnezzar knew God, he did not honor him as God, so God's wrath was coming upon him. Continuing in, in uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 24, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Exactly what happens to King Nebuchadnezzar is that there's a dream revealed, and the dream revealed says, look, if you refuse to repent, if you refuse to turn from your wicked ways, the wrath of God is coming. And you know what the wrath of God is? He's going to give you up to a debased mind. If you want to act like an animal and live for sin, I'm going to allow you to act like an animal and live in sin. That's exactly what happens to King Nebuchadnezzar. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. That There may be perhaps be a lengthening of prosperity. Break off your sins. Such interesting language here. Repentance is more than feeling sorry for your sin. It's action against sin. And for a lot of us, when we repent, it's because we know the consequence is coming and we're sorry and we don't want to face that and we're upset about that. But repentance is actually action against sin. And that's exactly why Jesus would say this in Matthew chapter 5, verses 28 through 30 in the Sermon on the Mount. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, then cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go to hell. This is figurative language, but Jesus is making a very clear uh, distinction here that when you want to repent of sin, you break it off. You, you take action against it. You go to war against the sin that's in your life. You don't just feel sorry for it. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy. Repentance is not just the conviction to change your personal morals. It is the conviction to show mercy towards others. We put so much emphasis on personal morality and so little emphasis on how we treat others. But if there's true repentance in your life, it's going to be obvious in your behavior towards other people. It's not that you just 
are sorry for your sin. It's not that you just don't want to sin anymore. It's not that you don't want to have this immorality in your life. That's part of it. There's a change. We're going to talk about the change. But there's also a change in how you treat people. Because if, if God is filling up the areas of your life that you filled with sin, then those areas of your life are going to start loving others the way Christ loves them. And so he's like, if you're going to break off your sin, do so by also showing mercy to those that need it. John MacArthur says this, repentance is not merely behavior reform, but because true repentance involves a change of heart and purpose, it inevitably inevitably results in a change of behavior. Repentance is a change. A change of mind. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. It's a change of mind. It's a change of mind in the way that you see sin. It's a change of emotion, Romans 12, 9. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, and hold fast to what is good. It's really hard to have repentance if you still love the sin that's in your life. If you're still emotionally driven to participate in sins of this world, it's really hard to have a change of mind and change of emotion. It's a change of purpose. When the woman who's caught in adultery, John 8, 11, she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, Sin no more. Repentance is a change of mind. It's a change of emotion, and it's a change of purpose. Go and sin no more. Live the life that God's called you to live. Don't conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. The heart of God is seen in how he pursues King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar is one of the most wicked kings in history, but God's pursuing him. And this is the heart of God, Ezekiel thirty-three eleven. Say to them, as, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? There's a God who is sovereign. And the sovereign God is longing for people to return to him, to turn back from the sins that are in their lives and to turn back and repent to break off sin, but also show mercy in doing so. Conviction in a corrupt culture concludes that consequences are coming. Let's keep reading, verses 28 through 33. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of the 12 months, he was walking on the roof of his royal palace in Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men, and he ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. He actually went crazy. He lost his mind. The wrath of God was coming. The consequences were coming. And God said, I'll hand you over. If you want to act like an animal in your sin, I'm just going to let you be an animal in your sin. If you continue to live corrupt without any conviction of repentance, 
or, conv- or repentance, you can conclude that consequences are coming. Proverbs 16.5, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. Again, in Romans 2, 4 through 8, do not presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance of his patience. Did you notice that 12 months had passed? King Nebuchadnezzar, 12 months has passed since Daniel has interpreted the dream and life is good. He's at ease in the palace. He's out there and he's, he's up on the rooftops and he's looking at all the kingdom that he has, he has established and he's like, man, look at what I have done. Do not presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. God is giving King Nebuchadnezzar time to repent. He's being very patient with him. But because of your hard and impotent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself. On the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed, he will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing, seek for glory and honor and immorality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be a wrath and fury. King Nebuchadnezzar is storing up wrath against himself. Twelve months pass by, and then the dream comes true. And what Paul says in Galatians is true. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, he will also reap. He was sowing to his sinful nature, and he was going to reap the consequences of it. If we continue to live in a corrupt lifestyle, we can conclude that consequences are coming. And God is gracious to correct us through convictions and consequences. The thing about being a child of God is that he will correct you. Just like a father. Hebrews says it this way in 12, 6 through 8 and 11. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves, chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have, been, you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. We can expect conviction and consequences. And we can expect it because God is going to use those to bring us back into a right relationship with him. And though it may seem unpleasant at the time, he's doing it for your good to produce in you righteousness. If there is no conviction of sin, though, and no concern for the consequences of your sin, then you lack a connection with Christ and the Father. Did you see what it says there? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. If you can live in a corrupt culture without any conviction and without any consequences of sin or any worry about that, then it shows that you may not be a child of God. You may not be worried about the sovereign God who wants to correct you. Correction is needed to be conformed to the image of Christ. He is working in our life to make us more and more and more into his very image. And it takes conviction, it takes connection to be conformed into his image. Here's the last thing. Conviction in a corrupt culture claims allegiance to the king of heaven. Daniel 34 through 37. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, 
For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me. And I was established in my kingdom. And still more greatness was added to me. You see this now, I, Nebuchadnezzar. Praise and exalt and honor the king of heaven. He's come to a point where he now worships the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He's not just admiring what God does. He's not just paying homage to what God does. He's not just adding God to a whole list of other gods. He's actually to a point where he realizes now, no, he is the God of all gods. And he is worthy to be praised. Humility is a hard lesson learned but a lasting testimony of our king. A lot of us in here, we have a hard testimony. Am I right? We've walked paths and God's allowed us to go through things that we wish we could have never gone through. But there is a king of kings and a Lord of lords who is worthy to be praised. And the reason he allowed that is so that you would come out on the other side and say, I have a testimony. And his name is Jesus. There is no other name. There is no other name under heaven and earth that needs to be praised. Our testimony shouts that Jesus is Lord and he is worthy of all our life. This was my life before Christ and now this is my life after Christ. I went through a period of time where I didn't know the Lord and I was handed over to sin and and it made me an animal. But then Christ came and I, I returned to my reasoning and returned to my mind and he is worthy of all praise. Amen. Nebuchadnezzar now has a testimony. He went from haughty to humble. He went from tyrant to testifier that Jesus is king. Have you got a testimony? Have you walked through waters that you wish you'd never walked through? Have you faced consequences you wish you hadn't faced? Are you watching people in your life now make decisions you wish they weren't making? And are you able to go to them like Daniel and say, I wish this wasn't for you? But if you don't break off your sins and turn from your wicked ways, the consequences are coming. May we be a people who love people genuinely enough that even if we see them as enemies, we would go to them and tell them about the wrath of God because he is worthy to be praised. And he is, cons- he is a consuming fire and he's coming for a corrupt world. And he wants us to be those warning signs of conviction. Thanks for listening. It is our prayer that this message has helped you grow in your walk with Christ. Please subscribe to hear new sermons 